Well, good morning. Welcome to Harvest. I get to say that to you for the first time. If you're new with us, my name's Johnny Pereira and have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. We're so grateful you're here, whether you're a first-time guest, regular attender, member of this church. You made a good choice to gather together with the people of God to give God the praise that he deserves. And so I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. If you are new with us, we've been in this series now for a few weeks entitled King of Hearts, looking at the rise of Solomon as king from 1 Kings 1 through 1 Kings 11. And not only looking at the rise of Solomon as king, but unfortunately, the demise of Solomon as king with some of the choices that he made along the way. And as we look at these chapters in the beginning of 1 Kings, really our aim and our hope and our desire is that as we look at these things that are found in God's word in this narrative, that we would glean things that would show us what it looks like to make the Lord the king of our heart. And to see the importance of that and the blessing of that, that that we get to enjoy when the Lord is indeed in that place that he deserves. And also learning from some of the mistakes that Solomon made and the consequences that can come into our life when the Lord is not the king of our heart. And so that's really our aim and as I said, our hope and our, and our intent as we walk through these chapters in the beginning of this book of First Kings. So if we've entitled the message King of hearts, then don't you think it's important that we define what we mean? And so I want to give you a definition of what I mean when I say king of your heart and that being the place that the Lord deserves, that being the posture that your heart needs to be. Here's the definition of what I mean of king of your heart if you're taking notes. It's this, submission to the Lord in all areas of your life. That's what we mean. That's what we're getting at in this series is when I submit to the Lord in all areas of my life, the blessings that come with that. And when I say blessings, I feel like I always have to make the caveat that that doesn't necessarily mean financial blessings. That means that the things that we put our minds to, as we looked at last week, that we will experience God's strength, God's strength to do what he's called us to do. We'll experience success. We'll get to experience God's blessings in our lives as we go after the things that he's called us to do. So that's really what we're looking at. When we say king of heart, or when I say the Lord needs to be the king of your heart, what I mean is submission to the Lord in all areas of your life. Key word all. Because I can't have the Lord as the king of my heart if I look at my heart, let's just think of your heart as a house. And in your house, you have different rooms. And if you were to invite me over at your house, and I could say the same thing, if I was to invite you over to my house, there would be certain rooms I would not want you to go in. Not necessarily because I have something to hide in a bad way, but because they're rooms that are not the tidiest. They're rooms that are the catch-all room, right? Everyone have one of those? Or better yet, maybe I get a little even more descriptive and I could say there's certain drawers in your kitchen that you would not want people to pull out, right? Everybody has a junk drawer. Who has a junk drawer? Raise your hand and you're able to admit it. Yes, we have one as well. But I make that illustration to prove, to, to, really, to really give you a visual of a biblical principle that we're really going to emphasize every week of this series when submission to the Lord 
in all areas of my life, when I say that, what I mean is, is there's no area that I say, Lord, this is off limits. Don't open that drawer. Don't go in that room. No, no, no. King of your heart means, Lord, I'm submitted to you. I'm seeing you as king in my life in every area. And so we're going to come now to 1 Kings 3, and we're actually going to look at chapter 4 as well. And let me just say this in case you're new. By the way, if you miss a week, and you're, I know we're getting close to vacation season, and you're away a week, or you're sick a week, or whatever it is, I say this because it's important that you understand this. We film this every week so that this can be put online, so if you miss a week, you can watch it. If you think somebody else needs to hear this, you can send it to them. You can subscribe to our podcast, and so if you miss a week, I want you to make sure that you're tuned in to what we're going after in this series because it's so fundamental to our life, but I said this at the beginning of this series, we're not going to look at every single verse from 1 Kings 1 through 1 Kings 11, because that would be a longer series than eight weeks. But we are going to touch on key passages from chapter 1 through chapter 11, and so this morning is no different. But in saying that, let me kind of catch us up to where we find ourselves in what we're going to read today in 1 Kings chapter 3. See, the first two chapters really deal with King Solomon's reign being established, And that's what we're really looking at in this time period from 1 Kings 1 to 1 Kings 2. It was the story of how Solomon's kingdom was established over the last three years. So when we come to chapter 3, what we're going to read here in just a few minutes, three years of Solomon's reign have taken place. And and, and Solomon's kingdom, it shouldn't surprise you when I say this, was far from being straightforward in how it was to be established. It was complicated. And haven't you always experienced that when God calls you to a new, de- new endeavor, as excited you, as you are about it, as much as you think you have the plans laid out and what you're gonna go after next and, and, and what's gonna happen here and what's gonna happen there and you put it all into place and you got a nice little pretty plan and all of that, it's far from straightforward often, is it not? It's often complicated. It's complicated. Because life's complicated. And Solomon's reign in establishing it was no different. That's why King David said, we looked at this last week, when he tells Solomon when he's about to pass away and Solomon's going to be king, he says, Solomon, you need to be strong to do what God has called you to do so that you can experience God's success in your life, so that you can experience God's destiny being experienced in your life. But King David knew it was going to be complicated because it was complicated for him. And even though we didn't deal with these verses, I at least want to make mention of them because I encourage you to, to read through these chapters along with us as we unpack them on Sunday morning and read the verses that I don't necessarily touch on from the stage here. But after you get to about from 1 Kings 2, 5, and you go past verse 5, you get to where now David is not only instructing Solomon in how he should pursue the Lord spiritually, now David's going to give him some action items on how he, need to, how he needs to practically establish his kingdom. And it's really like a hitman list. You, David, or Solomon, you need to take out this person, you need to take out this person. Yeah, that guy that did that to me, yeah, you take out him too. And so you read that and you're like, Okay, we just went from David telling Solomon to just how he needs to view the Lord and how he needs to seek the Lord, and now David's like, okay, Solomon, here's what I also want you to do. I want you to take these people out. 
And while that be me like, man, was that right? Was that wrong? The reality is, is David is giving Solomon these things because these are enemies to Solomon experiencing the kingdom that God has given him. And the point of that is, is not to get caught up into, well, was this right or was this wrong or did David have a vendetta here or not? The point is, is to illustrate something that we all have lived, that when you are going after something, it's complicated. And when I'm going after what God wants me to do, you know what I need because it's complicated? I need God's wisdom. Like, let me just ask you a question. Can we be transparent in this place? How many of you would raise your hand and say, man, I know what I'm about to experience going into this week or what I've experienced the last few weeks, and I want to raise my hand because here's the reality I know. I need God's wisdom. If you need God's wisdom, raise your hand. Man, I got both hands up. Like, what's not enough? I need God's wisdom. Pretty much every hand was raised. And if you're taking notes, that's the title of the message this morning. It's this, I need God's wisdom. Not period, exclamation point. I need God's wisdom. I'm gonna pray here in a moment, but I want you to get this idea that godly wisdom, godly wisdom is what you are graciously given and living when the Lord is the king of your heart. We already defined what we mean by king of our heart. That I can have the assurance today If I've put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, not in the good that I've done, but in the perfection that he has accomplished for me through his life, death, and resurrection, that if I am a follower of Jesus Christ and he is my Savior, then godly wisdom is graciously given to me. And I am living in that godly wisdom when I'm submitted to him in all areas of my life. So I'm gonna pray here in a moment. And if you raised your hand this morning, and I think pretty much everybody did, it's, not, it's hard for me to see everyone, but I, I think it's pretty safe to say everyone did, then I want you to take whatever that is, and I want you to take it to the Lord as I pray out loud and say, Lord, I need your wisdom in this. Would you help me to hear what you want, want to say to me through your word today so that I can walk out of these doors committed to live in the wisdom that you graciously have offered me. Lord, we're here today to hear from you. Lord, we say in this place every week that when your word is open, your mouth is open. Lord, we value and we cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place because it is our hope. It is what we put our trust in, not just for our salvation, but really the hope to live our life the way that you desire us to live it. So Lord, would you help us to be reminded that you offer to us every day your wisdom. But with that offer, there's a responsibility to live in it. And by living in it, Lord, may we see that that requires us to be submitted to you in all areas of our life. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, amen. You know, when we talk about wisdom, maybe your mind is drawn to some different passages of Scripture that talk about that. And this is probably one of the passages of Scripture that many of you think of when I talk, when I just mentioned godly wisdom, and it's James 1.5. We did a series over a year ago through the book of James here. And James 1.5 James says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. 
who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. That's an amazing verse. That if I need wisdom, that I know I can go to the place to where I can receive it, and that is the Lord. And what's awesome is, is when I ask it, doesn't matter how many times I ask it, he will graciously give it to me without finding fault. That's an awesome thing. Maybe some of you, let me draw your minds back to when you were in school. School's about to wrap up, and I know all the kids that are in here just yell out in their souls quietly that it's almost over. But think about it, whether you are in school right now or you used to be in school, think about it. Were you the kid who was like, had lots of questions, but you were afraid to raise your hand because you're like, man, I'm afraid to raise my hand because everyone else might think this is a stupid question, including the teacher? Like, is that you this morning? Like, like I remember when I was in school, there was sometimes, I know it's hard to believe that, you know, I'd, you probably think, man, Johnny doesn't have a problem speaking what he thinks. Uh, but there was a time I was a little shyer, and I remember sometimes being like, man, I really want to ask this question because I'm not connecting to what the teachers say, but everybody else seems to be like they're getting it, so I don't want to raise my hand and be the only kid who asks a dumb question and then looks like I don't know what I'm doing or hearing or processing. Here's the awesome thing. When I read this verse, I always think back to those days when I felt that way, or maybe even feel that way sometimes now, that there's no dumb questions with God. There's no thing too simple that you can't say to the Lord, Lord, I need your wisdom in this. In fact, that's what he wants. He wants us to come to him, and there's a promise that when we come to him, he'll give us what we need. Now, we were talking about godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is graciously given to us, and we are living in it when he's the king of our heart. Well, that would cause us to say, well, what is godly wisdom? See, I want to be very clear this morning. And the beautiful thing is, is God clearly defines for us what godly wisdom is. I could give you some little cutesy definition this morning, but I actually think we ought to just look at God's word. James 3.17 tells us what godly wisdom is. So I want us to see what God's word has to say about godly wisdom so that when we go to 1 Kings 3, which we will hear in a moment, we'll be able to see how that is playing out in Solomon's life. Look at James 3.17. It's on the screen, but you can turn there as well. This is how godly wisdom is defined. It says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. That has the idea of purity of motives. That when I'm operating with godly wisdom, there's no selfish agenda tied to the way that I am living my life. It's pure. Then it says that it's peace-loving. That's the idea of having clarity and calm in the midst of chaos. You ever been there like everything is spinning around you, everything seems to be just falling apart and you have a sense of calm and a sense of clarity? It's because you're living in godly wisdom. It says it's considerate. That's the idea. Other passages of scripture to use this word and, and, and translate it as meek. It has the idea of power under control. In other words, I don't say everything that comes out of my, that's in my head. Like it's power under control. Yes, I could crush someone with these words, but I know that that's not right. I'm going to exercise godly wisdom. I'm going to be considerate. It, then it says submissive. That's the idea of humble and teachable. Listen to me. Just as a side note, when I am not operating in a manner that is teachable, when I admit that I don't know everything, when I am exercising humility, then I know that I'm living by godly wisdom. And the opposite is true. When I'm not, I know I'm not living by godly wisdom. Then what does it say? It says full of mercy. That has the idea of having a forgiving attitude. 
and good fruit, it says. That's the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, those, that fruit of the Spirit that's described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And then it says impartial, in other words, single-minded. Like This is what God's Word says. This is what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter what everyone else is saying. No, no, no. I'm going to be impartial. This is truth. This is God's Word. I'm going to obey. And then the last characteristic of godly wisdom in this verse is sincere. In other words, it's free of hypocrisy. Like, I'm not playing this game. That's godly wisdom defined. And we're going to see many of these characteristics in Solomon now. So hopefully you're in 1 Kings chapter number 3. And when we look at this passage of Scripture, specifically, we're going to unpack verse 5 all the way through verse 14, and we're going to touch on some other verses in these chapters, but specifically, verse 5 through verse 14, we're going to see Solomon say some things. And things that Solomon says show that he's exercising godly wisdom. And so as we look at the things that Solomon says, what I want to draw out of these things is four sentences that you will say and I will say when we're living with godly wisdom. Like when I'm living with what's found in James 3.17, these things, these sentences are the things that my heart, my life, even my mouth is going to utter when I'm living with the wisdom that God graciously gives me. So the first sentence is found in verses 5 and 6. Would you look at it with me? It says, And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. Can we just stop there and not gloss over that? Like how many of you, you can raise your hand if you want. I'll raise my hand for you. How many of you would love one of those dreams? I would love one of those dreams. Like, those would be an awesome dream. I dream, I don't dream often, but when I dream, it's rarely anything like this. Like, literally, God appears to him in a dream and says, Solomon, ask, make sure I get it right, ask what I shall give you. Can you imagine, like, an open request, whatever you want. Some of you, let's just stop. Can we just, can we just dream a little bit? Can we, can we do that in this place? Dream a little bit? What would you say? Man, I love a husband. I love a wife. I love a new house. Like, right? Like, like, don't pretend like you're being all spiritual all the time. Like, you have things that you would ask for that you want right now. And Solomon gets this open invitation from God. And look at what Solomon says, verse 6. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love. I don't want to gloss over that. That word steadfast love is this rich Hebrew word hesed. Now, I don't mention what Greek and Hebrew words are, because frankly, I'm not doing that so you think I'm smarter than I really am. But I want you to understand when you see steadfast love in the Bible, it is that word hesed. I think it's important that you know that Hebrew word because it's such a rich word. It means unconditional love. It means a love that you can't earn. It's not a love that you deserve. It's not a love that's dependent upon you. It's all dependent upon God. It's from God to you, but not dependent upon you to God. It's unconditional It's a very weighty word, and we're going to talk more about that in a second. Solomon says, 
Solomon says, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, which is interesting because didn't David make some serious mistakes? <laughs> like mistakes we hope we never make. Like I hope no one ever murders someone, which David did. But notice how David is described. He walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. Why? Because he's thanking the Lord for God's unconditional love to his dad. And look at what else he says. And he says then, and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. Like you've continued to show this to him. Because why? Because you've given him a son to sit on the throne this day. So what Solomon is saying here is he's saying, Lord, before I ever get to answering your invitation that you have given to me, which is such an amazing, mind-blowing thing that I can literally ask anything from you and you're telling, it, you're telling me you will give it to me, before I ever go to what I need, to my supplication, Lord, I'm gonna take time to give celebration. See, that's godly wisdom. Godly wisdom always starts with celebration before it gets to supplication. And there's nothing wrong with supplication. God wants us to take our needs to him. God wants us to acknowledge that we need him in things. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But before we go with our needs, godly wisdom says, man, let me praise God with the greatness of what he's given. Let me acknowledge that first. See, I think this is the first sentence we will say when we're living with godly wisdom. It's this, and I'm going to say this sentence, and then I want us to repeat back this sentence and the other three that we're going to mention today. Here's the first one. Lord, thank you for your unconditional love. Can we say that together? Lord, thank you for your unconditional love. See, we too often, and I say we to put myself in there, I too often, Focus, put all of my attention on the need before acknowledging and praising all the ways that God has given me blessing. And you probably do that as well. But Solomon doesn't do that. And I don't think we can gloss over that because that's a significant thing. Because let's go back to that word has said, what he thanks the Lord for and what he's shown to his father, and what, how he's graciously shown that to Solomon, how he's shown that to himself. Because if said means unconditional love, then that means nothing can get in the way of that love. No sin that his father has committed, though they were great. Committing immorality, and committing murder, and different things like that, and disobeying God through different times in his father's reign. But the beautiful thing is, is David understands, God, I've sinned against you, I repent of that, I ask forgiveness of that, and David experienced that unconditional love throughout his reign as king of Israel, and Solomon knew it. He knew what that word meant. And I wonder how many of you, you raised your hand and you're like, man, I need God's wisdom. Or this week or that week, you found out something and you're like, God, I need you in this. But did you start out saying, Lord, I thank you so much that the only reason I can even go to you today 
is because of your hesed love to me. See, I think God's unconditional love needs to be the frame for everything we experience in our life. See, when I understand the word has said, I understand that God's love is greater than what? It's greater than my sin. It's greater than my failures. So even though my failures are not something that I want to concentrate on and dwell on, but man, when I put my failures in the frame of God's has said unconditional love, all of a sudden I have something that's memorialized in my mind of how good God is to me. I mean, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love to me that in the midst of my sin, that's when Christ died for me. Ephesians 2 says, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was without hope because of my sin. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God who was rich in mercy because of his great love, by where he loved me, he made me alive in Christ. By grace I have been saved. What's the significance of that? That it reminds me when I Thank the Lord for his unconditional love. When I'm needing something from the Lord, I start and say, wait a minute, Lord, let me, let me make sure I'm, I'm framing that sin that I've just committed and saying, Lord, I acknowledge it, I ask forgiveness of it, but once again, I put your unconditional love on display. It means that God's love is greater than any circumstances that I go through. What circumstances today do you need to put in the frame of God's unconditional love? So that those circumstances are seen in a way that you would not have seen them before. Why? Because you are framing them inside of something that gives you the right perspective. God's love is greater than my circumstances. God's love is greater than my tragedies. Man, I know some of you, I'm looking at your faces in this room. Some of you have lost people that you love in this last year. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you have, have been diagnosed with something or found out some terrible news even in this last week or these last few weeks and you're walking through different things. Here's where godly wisdom comes into play. Godly wisdom in spite of those circumstances, in spite of your sin, even in spite of tragedies that are a result of being in a fallen world. What we do with those is so important if we're gonna live in godly wisdom and godly wisdom says, Lord, I wanna frame those things by thanking you for your unconditional love. Before I ever go to supplication, God, I want to first make sure that I am practicing celebration. Here's a second sentence, and it's found in verses 7 and 8. Let's continue in this story. Solomon's got this dream. Solomon, ask whatever you want. Well, God, before I do that, I want to thank you. But now look at what he says in verse 7. And now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father. Notice he refers to himself. Watch how often he refers to himself in a way that shows humility. What, what, what did James 3.17 say? Godly wisdom is submissive. It's humble. It's teachable. Solomon calls himself a servant first. Then look at what he says. He says, although I am but a little child, that the, has the idea, those words have the idea of small and insignificant. He says, I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go in or how to go out or to come in. Literally what he's saying is, is I am so small and so insignificant that I don't even know what door to go out of and what door to come in. 
Verse 8, and your servant is in the midst of your people who you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Listen, remember, we're three years into Solomon's reign. So Solomon was already seen by other nations as significant, very significant. In fact, the kingdom of Israel at this point was one of the most powerful kingdoms in all of the known world. So Solomon had significance in the eyes of other nations, and he had significance in the eyes of those who he was ruling over. So don't make any mistake about that. Solomon had every reason to think that he was something. But I think it's so interesting that he didn't allow his successes or other people's admirations to affect his perspective of who the Lord was in relation to who he was. I mean, you see the language all over there in verses 7 and 8. And that causes me to really say, man, I need to beware. I need to beware of tying my identity and my significance to people's praise or to past or present successes. See, here's the second sentence that I believe we will say when we're operating with godly wisdom. It's this, Lord, I am nothing apart from you. Say that with me. Lord, I am nothing apart from you. Now, we don't live in a day and age today where that would be something popular to say. Like you would say, no, you need to think you're something. And I don't know about you, but no one ever had to teach me to think I was something. I do that fairly well on my own, (laughs) to the point of it not being realistic. And I know some of us are like, well, I'm more insecure, and I'm more of a secure person. But here's the reality. There's nothing about us walking around and saying, I am just terrible. Hello, my name is Johnny Pereira. I want you to know that I stink. It's not that idea. But it's literally saying, Lord, in light of who you are, to use Solomon's words, I'm but a little child. It's saying, Lord, I'm nothing apart from you. And when we define ourselves by the praise of others, I'm here to tell you it's only a matter of time before your world comes crashing down. Because maybe you haven't realized, you haven't lived long enough to realize this or not, but if you're living for the praise of other people, get ready, because it's about to come crashing down. Because I can literally be the greatest thing since sliced bread, and an hour from now, you can hate my guts. Because that's human nature. And as much as I can be praised for a success that I may have accomplished, I can make a stupid decision later on, and that's all that you'll remember. Don't live for the parade. Because the parade passes. See, misplaced identity is really idolatry. Because when anything or anyone is in the place that only the Lord deserves to be, which is the king of my heart, I am living in idolatry. I'm practicing idolatry. I'm putting my significance in something that can never give me what I hope it will. Deuteronomy 6 is such a great passage of Scripture to warn us against thinking we're something that we're not. 
taking praise for something that is a result of the Lord's work in our life. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12, just listen to me. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read it right away. It says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you in out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. This context is the Lord is telling them this as they're about to enter the promised land. And what the Lord is saying is, beware that you start taking credit for the things that I have graciously given you. Solomon doesn't do that here because he understands the only reason that I'm in this place of leadership and the only reason that I'm king is because God chose it to be. And the only reason I have been given this opportunity to to ask the Lord something is because God has graciously given me this opportunity. Solomon understands, Lord, I'm nothing apart from you. And when I'm living in godly wisdom, that is coming out of my life, that is emulating out of my life. Here's a third sentence, and it's found in verse 9. Now Solomon finally gets to what he wants. Some of you may be here, and you're like, man, I've never heard this passage of Scripture before. You've probably already read ahead, but you may be sitting here, what does he ask for? I'm wondering, I'm wondering. Well, let's find out. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. That word mind means give me discernment. That's what I want, Lord. To govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Look at what he says again. For who is able to govern? That word govern means lead. Who is able to govern and lead this your great people? I love Solomon's heart here. Man, it's such a rebuke and encouragement to the way I often live my life and probably the way that you often live your life. That what Solomon is literally saying here is, God, I can't do this without you. And because I understand who you are and who I am, Lord, it's going to lead me to say this third sentence in my life when I'm living with godly wisdom, and it's this, Lord, I need you in order to to accomplish the task that is set before me. Say that with me. Lord, I need you in order to accomplish the task set before me. When's the last time you've said that? Now, unless you thought I glossed over verses one through four, let's go to verses one through four. Because remember, Solomon's been reigning for three years, It's not like he's just gotten on the throne and he has this dream. No, no, no. Three years have gone by. And up to this point, when I say up to this point, I mean up to this passage of Scripture that we're unpacking this morning, Solomon has been operating out of his own wisdom. Here's what it, here's the term of me operating out of my own wisdom. Are you ready for this? Here's the term, pragmatism. Me operating out of human wisdom. What's pragmatism? Pragmatism is do what makes sense. Oftentimes that can be the easy thing. Oftentimes that can be the thing that makes most sense. Oftentimes that can be the thing that you're like, let me see where the wind is blowing. 
And you can make good decisions with pragmatism. And the reason why I say that Solomon is operating to, on his own human wisdom up to this point is look at what it says in verse 1. You're like, man, is Johnny going to touch on this this morning? Yes, I am. Look at verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Already seeing a problem here? He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, these are the things that David is going to, or Solomon is going to be building in the chapters to follow. So really, this is almost like an overview of Solomon's life here. But Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, those of you who maybe know a little bit more about the Bible are like, well, that's not something he should have done. Not supposed to. Israelites were not supposed to marry with individuals that did not believe that the Lord was the one true God. But here's what pragmatism comes into place. This is what kings did. They married a daughter of another king so that they would have an alliance. And Solomon is experiencing tremendous blessing by God. They're one of the greatest nations, as I said, that exists up to this point. And so the king of Egypt obviously makes an alliance with King Solomon, because he wants to be under King Solomon's protection, and so it would make sense for King Solomon to do that. Pragmatism. Here's another way we see pragmatism. Look at verses 2 and 3, and it says, The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Now, if you're also familiar with God's Word in a little bit, and especially if you keep reading into 1 Kings past, past where we are today, you find out that Israel has a problem worshiping at the high places because the high places is where they practiced idolatry. They worshiped other gods. But right here at this point, the reason that is given on why Solomon was sacrificing and worshiping God at the high places is because the temple hadn't been built yet. And so pragmatism says, well, we don't have a place to worship the Lord, so let's go to the high places. Yeah, I understand that's where, you know, before people used to worship pagan gods, but we're worshiping the one true God, so let's just go there and let's take something that's bad and let's make it good. And... But what happens is, is over time is the people and the kings, not only King Solomon, but other kings after him, get used to worshiping in the high places. And what begins to happen is that habit develops into a practice where they less and less worship when the temple is built in the place and the person that they should be worshiping and where they should be worshiping, and they start worshiping more other gods in the high places that once was the place in the moment that Solomon said, let's do this. My point in sharing that is that Solomon was operating by human wisdom. It made sense. And we can make good decisions by things making sense. But when we begin to develop the habit of let me just do what seems right for me to do, it's going to lead me down a road where I become self-sufficient rather than dependent and causes me to stop saying this phrase that Solomon says in verse 9, Lord, I need you to accomplish the task set before me. I want you to think about this last week. How often have you gone to the Lord in prayer? in the task that he set before you. How often have I done that in this last week? Because how I answer that will really reveal how much I believe this statement that we just said out loud. 
See, there's no task too small that I don't need the Lord's wisdom. Because if you're like me, I can categorize in my mind decisions that need God's wisdom and decisions that I think I can handle on my own. I could list out for you decisions right now that I'm like, yeah, that's probably one I need some wisdom from God. And then I can look at this other decision and say, I don't really need God for that. Don't look at me strange, because that's probably you too. Right? But when I'm operating in godly wisdom, and I'm operating with the characteristics found in James 3.17 that we just read, I'm like, wait a minute, I understand There's no good decision that I can make in life, no matter how insignificant it may seem to me or how great it may seem to me, without me coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you to accomplish this task that is set before me, whether it is me saying, I got to make the kids breakfast and lunch today. Lord, I need you. You know what I'm talking about in the mornings. Or whether I'm going and I have a meeting that literally my job is on the line this week. Lord, I need you in the task set before me. There is no task too small that we don't need God's wisdom. Why? Because we need to bring ourselves back to the second sentence. Lord, I am nothing without you. Here's the last sentence and we'll be done this morning. And it's found in verses 11 through 14. Let's read it first. Look at what it says. Look at God's response to Solomon's humility. In Solomon's acknowledgement of his dependency, or better way to say it, needed dependence on God. Look at verse 11. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself, because Solomon, you have not been selfish in your request, but you have exercised already wisdom and been selfless in your request, You've not asked for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself, understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. I'm going to give you that. It's literally an Old Testament version story of James 1.5. But look at what else. He says, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Look at verse 13, and I give you also what you've not asked. Aren't you so thankful for God's grace in your life? That God so often out of his grace gives you what you didn't even ask for. He so often blesses you with things that you don't deserve, but he does it anyway. And here we see God's grace for Solomon. He says, I'm going to give you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Now verse 14, here's God's expectation. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandment as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This last sentence comes from this phrase found in verse 11, because you have asked this and not asked for yourself. See, here's the fourth sentence I will say when I'm living with godly wisdom. Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. Say that with me. Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. Notice I just said, how often have you prayed? And that reveals whether or not you really believe you need the Lord in the task that's set before you. It's not just what you pray, but I want you to think about the content of your prayers. Because the content of my prayers reveal to me as well whether I believe it's about me or I believe it's about him. 
See, God blesses Solomon when he applies this godly wisdom to his life. We don't have time to read it, but in chapter four, verses 29 through 34, you have all the things that Solomon has accomplished in his reign that, were, that was a result of him living with godly wisdom. And I know what some of you have been thinking throughout this whole message this morning. Well, Johnny, it sure would be nice, man. I would love for God to appear to me in a dream and ask whatever I want I can have, and I, can, I could have asked for godly wisdom because then I would have lived like Solomon as well well. That'd be nice, but I didn't get that last night. But here's what we oftentimes forget. See, Solomon lived before the cross, before Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, before Jesus promised in John 14 that he would send a helper who would recall the things to mind what Jesus has said. See, we live on this side of the cross, and we have what Solomon didn't even have. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, available to his power every day of our life, which is why James 1.5 says, if you want godly wisdom, ask and he will give it generously because it's through the Holy Spirit that we experience his wisdom. So none of us in this room, if we're a child of God and we faith, placed our faith and trust in him, can say that I don't have what Solomon had. In fact, we can say I have more than Solomon had. But just like God says to verse, in verse 14 of chapter 3, Solomon, it's still going to require you to walk in my ways and keeping my statutes and my commandments. It's still going to require you to exercise the responsibility to take the potential that you've been given and put it into practice. And unfortunately, we see the degradation of Solomon, the demise of Solomon, where he over time does not take what he has been given and put it into practice. And the same challenges to us. Because God says, if you ask, man, I'll give it. But there's still a responsibility for us to put it into practice. See, potential's not enough. I've been pounding this in my kids these past couple of weeks. Potential's not enough. It's taking the potential and putting into practice so that you can see the result or the product. See, that's James 1, verse 6 through 8. Man, God will give you generously wisdom, but when you ask, you must respond in faith, not wavering, not being like a wave tossed to and fro, and being double-minded in all your ways. It's taking these things and saying, Lord, I want them to be my words. I want them to be my heart. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let's evaluate our hearts before we sing this last song. And say, Lord, I raise my hand that I want wisdom. I want your wisdom. I want godly wisdom. It's been given to me. I want to live in it. There's another phrase that though it's not found in this text, I didn't mention it, but I want to just say it. I think there's another phrase that I think we'll say when we're operating in godly wisdom, and it's this, Lord, I'm sorry for my pride. Please forgive me. It's not found in here, but it's found in plenty of other places. And maybe that's what you need to do. Lord, forgive me my pride. Forgive me for not framing my circumstances, my tragedies, even my sin in the frame of your said unconditional love. God, let me thank you for that first. 
Lord, I've been living my life thinking that I'm something. Lord, I'm nothing apart from you. I've been living my life self-sufficient. Lord, I need to remind myself I need you in every task that's set before me. Lord, I need to remind myself it's not about me, it's about you. God, help me not to be looking at my life selfishly, but looking at my life as a gift from you to live for you. That's what godly wisdom looks like. That's the foundation that we build our lives upon.